Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everybody. Today is Monday, February 16th and we have a very dynamic guest today as well as a wonderful topic. And today we're going to talk about the secret of turning early into long-term recovery using high dignity and low drama. Our guest today, who is an expert in high dignity and low drama in recovery, is Patrick Babcock. Patrick is originally from New York City. He currently lives in Portland, Maine, and he is enjoying over 13 years of continued uh, recovery. Patrick graduated from Fordham University's College of Business Administration in New York with a Bachelor of Science degree in Finance. Mr. Babcock's training has specialized in motivational interviewing, PTSD, cognitive behavioral therapy, the Gorski Synapse model of treatment and relapse prevention, and life skills mentorship. Having been first introduced to the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1988, as well as both inpatient and extended care programs, Mr. Babcock has seen firsthand what works and what does not work with regard to the process of recovery. Um, Patrick is the founder and executive director of Foundation House, helping men in recovery from alcoholism and chemical dependency, which he started in 2002. So welcome to One Hour at a Time, Patrick. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Mary. It's a pleasure to be on the air with you. Um, First of all, can you begin by sharing how you got from uh, finance to motivational interviewing? Well, I've never been asked that question. That's a good bridge, actually. Um, I, I, well, you know, I guess I'll give you a minor brief history, which, you know, one sentence kind of sums up uh, the next 18 years or so of my life. Um, my parents sent me to a private Ivy League kindergarten. So when I say that to people, that kind of really allows me to skip from kindergarten to at least college and explain that I was certainly part of, a, you know, the quote-unquote system in New York City. So as much as, uh, you know, growing up in the 70s at, at that time, there, there was a real pull between, oh, I guess maybe the dynamic of the 9 to 5 uh, business professional in New York who, you know, the, the whole, the whole uh, thrust then was, you know, make money, make fast money, and a lot of it was Wall Street and what have you. Uh, even though the, the, the city was going through a recession slash depression, you know, the other hand of that was once everyone uh, was done, you know, with their business day, they would, you know, uh, suit up into another costume and wind up, you know, going out on the town and with the underage drinking and the police looking the other way and Studio 54 and all that. I guess I wound up uh, seeing with a pretty, uh, a fairly keen eye uh, the, the the duality of life in the 70s in New York, which was one that uh, stressed be part of the system, become a lawyer, a doctor, you know, whatever, a Wall Street exec, and then on the other hand, it was almost, uh, well, not almost, I would consider it fairly hypocritical in that then at night go and blow all that money doing as many drugs as you can and, uh, you know, uh, enjoy the infidelity of the decade, if you will. Uh, so as I kind of uh, grew up in that, and then uh, that, you know, that roller coaster slid off the tracks for me personally into the 80s, where I found myself in the uh, holistically uh, hypocritical environment of Boulder, Colorado, which again was the, okay, I'm supposed to be going to college at the time and getting my degree, which added to the whole New York kind of system upbringing at the same time, too. Uh, it was hard not to uh, get caught up with the, the drug culture, if you will, and the, the ski culture uh, at the time. So I really didn't know much uh, until I got out of college of, uh, you know, trying to uh, duel between am I going to be a professional or am I going to be, you know, somewhat of a uh, uh, hippie ski bum uh, who, who just kind of um, uh, allows everyone else to do the work for me and hopefully each day I wake up, you know, uh, another chance will be given at, at, at some wonderful life when I was putting in very little work to do that. You know, recovery basically from a drug addiction that uh, took me to the age of 28 um, really presented the other world for me, that I didn't have to be that that New York system, you know, uh, business card, if you will, and that I, I could really enjoy just being me, uh, you know, and, and to kind of then, son, I'm trying to sum up, uh, you know, 42 years here uh, in, in less than three minutes. I guess the best way to explain it um, ultimately was 
when I did get sober, I got sober in Minneapolis. I got sober after 14 treatment centers. Uh, you know, there was 10 jails in eight states. There was 20 years of probation. Remember, this is this is the same you know child that was sent to the Ivy League private kindergarten. So I mean, that wasn't supposed to be on my resume, but you know, one thing leads to another. That all of a sudden becomes my resume. Um, I get sober at 28, basically unemployable. Um, I'm in Minnesota. I was, I, I, you know, for for lack of a better term, I was banished from New York State for legal reasons. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, dropped in uh, in that kind of Fargo-esque loving, oh, how are you? Kind of give me a hug. Uh, recovery center that, that is, you know, the Twin Cities. Thankfully, I did sober up there. I met my wife there. Uh, we moved back to Portland here. Um, and then one thing leads to another, and, of course, then 9-11 hits, and as it turns out, my best friend, uh, Peter Kellerman, who is a uh, partner at Cantor, Fitzger- uh, Cantor Fitzgerald, wound up dying that day. And I had what amounted to be my second epiphany, um, quite frankly, it uh, the first one certainly was when I got sober in, in 1995, and I decided I wanted to do something in, in his name. So instead, and, and the irony there really is, as you talk about the question, certainly was how did you get from finance to motivational interviewing? I mean, if there is any seal of uh, proof or what, what have you that Wall Street wasn't for me, certainly, you know, and, and I had my degree in finance, finance. I was supposed to go there. You know, I, I could almost say, thankfully, my addiction got in the way, but uh, that really sealed the deal. I realized, you know something, I, I, I ne- and, and we were, my, my wife and I were in the media uh, field at the time, and we were going to do some things, you know, for our own company or what have you, but that really made me think, instead of just working in the industry, um, I wanted to do something in his name. So knowing the effect that other men had on me to keep me alive and to help me in my early recovery to get to the point where at that time I was about uh, five or six years sober, um, I wanted to pass that on in Peter's name to other people. So uh, a friend of mine was doing something very similar in San Francisco, and I decided to uh, make the commitment to helping guys like guys help me. So, uh, you know, the day that literally Wall Street, Wall Street took its, you know, most famous hit, that being 9-11, uh, no pun intended, obviously, uh, I changed gears from the world of finance to, to that of, uh, you know, eventually having learned, you know, the, the, the dynamic of motivational interviewing and, you know, many other elements of recovery, and I've been helping guys ever since. So sorry about a, a long answer, but that really sums up 42 years in about three and a half minutes. Oh, Patrick, there's so many things I want to ask you, having said that. The first one that I just really want to comment on and ask you to comment on is the whole idea about addiction. We know that it's, you know, there's a biological component, but we also know there's an environmental component. And right. the way you described your situation in New York, it's almost like there was a culture of expectation that this is how you're going to behave. Well, there's no question about that. And, and for, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, how, how can I best put this without again, I've got so many feet in my mouth over the years, Mary, it's, uh, it, it's, I'm almost running out of room, but, That's you know, my addiction finally took me to, you know, I, first of all, I should say, I was certainly given every opportunity uh, to, to, live up to those expectations, and then to reap the rewards of them. And many of my friends have, no doubt, and God bless them. I mean, that's, that's, that's there. It's part of the American dream. Uh, side note, of course, a lot of what those expectations uh, are and how they you know, come to fruition we're seeing right now in the economy. That's just my own personal little interpretation of the private Ivy League school system of New York and where our economy is at now. That aside... Um, those expectations, when put upon a child, I mean, we're talking a child, and I'm talking about second, third, fourth grade, where clearly the institutions are making it very, very matter-of-fact to you that we don't behave this way. Well, what is that way? I'm in second grade. I have no idea how to behave other than to, you know, chase girls in the, in the playground or want to play kickball as opposed to learning about, uh, you know, the French Revolution. So these expectations, are, you know, they, they raise the bar so high without thinking that maybe, just maybe, uh, some of these children in these schools would much rather be in more of a dramatic school as far as, like, uh, you know, theatrical production or athletics or music, and they don't want to be in this just um, scholastic, you're going to become a doctor uh, environment. And that Thank pressure you. becomes as, as oppressive and as... Uh, 
standoffish for an individual and, 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 the, and the pressure to then succeed in it, and then when one fails, it, it's, it's akin to, and I, I, here's where the foot goes in, that type of childhood can very much be as difficult on uh, a young individual in, in that environment as it can be growing up in, whether it be a ghetto or uh, a family where there's abuse. Um, it, it's, it's another form of societal kind of situational abuse, if you will, to young children. And what it leads to uh, eventually, we've seen time and time again. Okay, and we'll be right back um, to talk with Patrick further about the secret of turning early recovery into long-term recovery. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Patrick Babcock, the uh, CEO and founder of Foundation House in Portland, Maine. And we're talking about um, early and long-term recovery. But we began by talking a little bit about Patrick's own journey and his addiction. And one of the things that we talked about while we were at break is um, maybe some of you saw after one of the big crashes that the stock market took since Christmas, um, CNN panned to the floor of the Wall Street um, the floor of Wall Street, and the traders, it was like trading is done, and they were all drinking. And I thought to myself, wow, what, what, a, what a terrible way to relieve stress. And, Patrick, um, is that common? It's not just a terrible way to relieve stress, and that dates back, I'm sure, to the beginning. I mean, after all, Bill W., you know, was, was a member of that uh, elite club, if you will, and it was right. part of that pressure that, that led him to, you know, uh, eventually start AA because there was no other way to get out but the 12 steps that he and Dr. Bob started. So, I mean, if there's any, if there's, if there's, if there's a better example as to how bad that pressure cooker can truly be on an individual, uh, we should look no further than Bill W. How do people get sober on Wall Street? Boy, you got me. You know something. I, quite frankly, I would I would say they quit for a, a, a chunk of time, and and that's what gets back to kind of what we're talking about here with the, you know, the high dignity and low drama. You know, and to or well, yeah, it's basically the best way to put it. You know, and to go to the definition of each. I mean, you got to look at the definition of dignity is the quality or state of being worthy, honored, or esteemed. And that does not mean being enabled or propped up, pampered, nor worshipped. It just means a state of being worthy, honored, and esteemed. 
The definition of drama in that case is a state or situation or series of events involving interesting or intense conflict of forces. So the key here, and in particular, let's say for a person on Wall Street, is to honor without conflict. And there's a chunk of people that are living behind the idea. It's, if anything, a conflicting uh, lifestyle where if they are truly relieving that pressure through cocaine or, or, or alcohol or chasing uh, you know, the carrot at the end of the stick through the concept of better living through chemistry, uh, you have to take a look at that conflict. And ultimately, there is the, 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 the idea that people, places, and things plays a part into this. Geography plays a part into this. So if you can remove someone from that conflict, and I'm not talking about falling back on the old 1970s, um, you know, put, them, put someone in a corner with a dunce cap and the diapers, which people really did. I mean, there were facilities that did that back in the day. Nor am I talking about, and, and I might be alienating a couple of my friends here, if you will, but I'm not, I'm not also ta- I'm not talking about sending someone to a, you know, necessarily <laughs> 30 to 50 to 70 to $100,000 rehabilitation uh, facility that lasts anywhere from 28 to 90 days. Uh, where, you know, the, the, the focus is on making sure someone's Bluetooth can, you know, hook up with the Wi-Fi or what have you, and that their double half-calf, you know, twist with the lemon latte is sufficiently warm in the right temperature. We're talking about something in the middle of the two, and removing someone from that situation is, 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 is essential, first and foremost. And secondly, it's then getting someone in an, an environment where, where the dignity is authentic. It's, Normal people uh, living the life themselves, not as a reflection of Wall Street, and at the same time, not as a reflection of the demoralization that, in many ways, our politicians, quite frankly, want to keep the drug addict and alcoholic. I mean, I see a lot of armbands and, and support for just about any disease that we have here in America, but I've yet to see one of these uh, Lance Armstrong kind of breast cancer uh, bracelets for recovery. Well, I think you make a good point, and I, part of the reason I believe for that, it's twofold. One is is that we there's still so much discrimination for people with addiction, and people in recovery have been reluctant to stand up and say, "Hey, you know, recovery is possible. I pay taxes, I have a foundation, I you know, I work at the post office." That um, people feel there'll be retribution or they're violating a tradition if they're talking about being in recovery. Well, you know, and, and speaking of speaking of recovery, um, uh, you know, allow me to ask kind of the, those who are listening now and then certainly, uh, you know, uh, streaming after the fact, to take one moment, two, two seconds really, it doesn't take any more than that. If you can right now, please picture an alcoholic. In your mind, picture an alcoholic. What is the image that we always come up with? Is it not the person on the Bowery in the long, tattered, dirty, you know, trench coat with the disheveled hair or the, 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 the red nose or perhaps it's your abusive father? I mean, and we're always thinking of the alcoholic as someone in their active addiction, not realizing that um, this person, you know, most likely, especially with recovery, could be living a lot longer, more of a successful, spiritual, sober life for many other years outside of the active days. And, and we don't focus on that, whereas with, you know, anything else, cancer, diabetes, we think of someone who is a survivor, successful, people, are, you know, around the bed supporting them, doctors helping, but we isolate the alcoholic dramatically without any dignity and demoralize them by keeping this stigma of, of vision upon them in our own minds and as a culture. Right, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's always amazed me that um, that when the HIV epidemic started, um, people with HIV, gay men and, and lesbian women stood up and said, listen, we don't want to die. You need to find out what's causing this, and you need to um, provide treatment for us. And the government did. And that's never happened with people with addiction. It hasn't, no. We generally what winds up happening is the pharmaceutical companies uh, get involved in more often than not, and I know you and I have had a discussion about this, um, and I'm not here to, to say that, you know, medicine's not, you know, I'm not looking to go to the, the, the Amazon jungle and start to dispense leaves and, and acorns to people to get sober, but uh, there's no question in my mind that, um, you know, our, our society, just look at any uh, hour-long uh, section of uh, television and you'll see, uh, you know, three, four, five, eight 
commercials for take this, you'll feel better. Take this, you won't feel as good. Take this, uh, you know, your bowels will move. Take this, you'll, you'll, you'll I mean, literally, there's, there's pills now that they're, you know, uh, they have on TV so we can urinate better. I mean, I, I'm just beyond, beside myself that everything has now got to be taken care of with a pill. And that's what our society is, is really looking upon as far as addiction right now. It's once again trying to find that pill. And in this case, personally, I see a lot of young men uh, with somewhat of my same background who didn't really sign up for the entitled, I'm going to be a doctor or a lawyer thing. They didn't necessarily want that. They get strung out on opiates that are so pervasive in the, these inner cities, as well as, geez, in northern Maine, it's, uh, it's a huge epidemic. And, and the first thing they're prescribed is Suboxone. Right, but we're talking about prescription opiates, right? We're ta- well, for the prescription and street opiates, both. But the, and the first thing that, you know, a lot, a lot of these young kids who, who don't need uh, more prescriptions uh, are being told by naive parents and at, t- at times very naive doctors is, oh, well, I, I can, you know, get you with Suboxone or Clonidine or something like that. We're talking about a 19-year-old kid who, if he goes back to school or, or what have you, or goes back into his community and say, well, I'm on Suboxone or Methadone, that stigma has, in no way, shape, or form is going to be lifted. The parents and the community, principals, whoever it might be, are still going to be looking at this person as some sort of handcuffed, uh, you know, ball and chain kind of individual that they just have to deal with. And that, I see that happening a tremendous amount right now with very young kids. I'm not saying that that's not appropriate in certain situations, especially if we can bring people into recovery to smooth out the detox. I'm all for that. But sending young kids off uh, to go then to, to then have to go back into that kind of uh, what, what are we talking about here? Maybe you know that carousel, that vicious cycle of okay, well now the parents spent all that money on me. 28 days later, you know they're going to want me to you know get back into the family business, which might be too high stress. Before you know it, they're back to drinking beers on the on the floor of uh, of Wall Street because they can't take the pressure and they haven't learned to deal with it without medication, and they're, you know, 22 years old, fresh out of college, uh, right around other guys who are drinking right on the floor. It's well, just a, a huge I think mess. With, with a lot of folks that um, recovery is a journey, and it's not like addiction is a chronic illness and chemical dependency is a chronic illness, and it's, it's like diabetes, it's like hypertension, it's like cancer, it's like heart disease. There's no quick um, fix. For it, you know, if you have appendicitis, they take it out and then you never have it again. Right. You know, um, if you have a bowel obstruction, they operate on your bowel, put it back together, and right. then you're all set. But with this, it's a chronic illness, and so the recovery from it, just like the recovery from a stroke or from heart disease, it takes it, it takes time. There's no magic bullet, and and I think that certainly the addiction profession and um, all kinds of the government are looking for a quick fix. Without question. And that gets, that, that gets back to the uh, moving it from early to long-term recovery. There is no such thing as early recovery. I mean, early, what is early recovery? I'm going to be sober for 28 days, 30 days, 90 days. I mean, the, the insurance companies and, and basically really the insurance companies, it was the insurance companies that came up with the 28-day model. It wasn't the, the, the recovering community or... or uh, or, or treatment centers, per se. It was truly the, the, the insurance companies looking for, again, the quick fix. And, and they've even shortened it down to three to seven days now. There's no such thing as a three to seven day treatment for recovery. I mean, Mary, your, your own show uh, sums it up perfectly. It's, it's an hour at a time. I, I, a day at a time most often is even too I've got 13 and a half years, and a day at a time is way too long for me. You know, I've got to implement elements of my sobriety and my recovery. I've got to implement the 12 steps uh, so often throughout the day that I'm not even aware that I'm doing it at this point. Just to get through, I mean, life's tough. It's not easy. Just because I'm I'm sober, that doesn't mean, you know, life's going to be uh, uh, candy corn and and, and cotton candy. No, and I think that the, the point that I think you're trying to make and that we really want to talk about is the fact that there are, just like there are things you need to do be in the action part of your addiction, there are skills and behaviors you need to embrace to really enjoy recovery. Without and question. That, and, the, and that, you know, to think that you're going to know all that in 10 days, 28 days, six months is unrealistic because life's a journey. And we'll be right back to talk more about recovery with Patrick after this break. 
listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We would really like to have you join us. If you have a question or comment for Patrick, um, please give us a call. Uh, one of the things I just wanted to clarify um, from my perspective in terms of early and um, long-term recovery, recovery is recovery, but it's been my experience, people who are, who are new, newly sober, um, oftentimes they have uh, their memories poor, um, they might be more agitated, that the skills they need in that part of their life is different than they, the skills that they need to develop, you know, two or three years down the road, or, or what they're experiencing physically is different than, than what they're experiencing a year or two down the road. So um, from my kind of medical perspective, early recovery to me has always meant somebody who's still um, under the somewhat acute effects of their uh, their addiction even though they're not using substances anymore. Yeah, I, I, I would, would clarify I would fully, that. So. Well, I would fully agree with that, but, you know, and, and we were kind of talking about a break that, you know, how do I describe that, you know, on, on and, or how do I make use of that clinically, uh, whether it's a Gorski model or using motivational interviewing techniques. Um, I agree with you. There, there's, without question, different... Uh, pockets or, or times of recovery, early, mid, uh, you know, long-term, late maintenance, you know, whatever we, we could, you know, throw as a, as a term um, out there that, that maybe you and I could understand as we've gone through it personally or professionally. But like I was, again, telling you off the break, it's very difficult for me because um, Foundation House in particular, um, and maybe I should uh, kind of explain that, and you know, uh, this is why I use this type of approach. Foundation House specifically is for people post-treatment. It's not a primary rehab facility. It's a 35-bed uh, facility that, the best way I can describe it, um, is a mix between primary halfway house and sober living uh, facilities. You know, we'll, we'll do so. We have process groups. Um, we, we'll, we'll, uh, we have two LADCs, licensed alcohol and drug counselors, and two, uh, one psychotherapist and a psychiatrist all who, uh, you know, work with our, our uh, residents individually. Um, we have, you know, house meetings in the weekend. We go out and we, do, we climb the main rock wall or, uh, you know, do go-karting stuff, you know, experiential stuff like that or, or beach volleyball or, uh, you know, what I, whatever it might take to, you know, create some sort of group therapeutic, safe, sober, structured dynamic. There's, you know, chores have to get done. Uh, we have a medicine management program where it's all locked up. You know, there's not a lot of orange bottles floating around. And, and, I'll, and I'm going to get back to why this ties into this, you know, somewhat non-clinical yet clinical approach. Um, you know, a money management program. It, it's, a, it's a broad spectrum 
of what you'd find, as I say, in primary, in a, in a halfway house and in a sober living facility, but specifically geared for people who have already been through all of that treatment. Um, and it's my belief that at some point I love treatment. I mean, my God, I went through 14 of them. But, um, you know, and I, quite frankly, and this might sound nuts, but with the schedule that we have, you and I, Mary, I mean, I'm sure you, you could maybe relate to this, I'd sign up and go to one in a heartbeat right now. Oh, my God. I mean, if you can send me out to, let's say, Sierra Tucson for some equine therapy uh, and get out of Maine in the winter, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Right. You know, I think that what you're describing is, is, a, is a sense of community and a sense of belonging that I think is really crucial to people um, wanting to be in recovery. Well, but not only that, they, they want to actually remove, like we were talking about, that stigma where you're using too many of the, the, well, you're, you know, always reminding them that you're an alcoholic and you, you don't know what you don't know. Now, perhaps that's important to point out to kind of allow someone to have uh, a, a hopeful, open mind that, um, you know, that something down the road is going to come true, whether it's the promises or what have you, but constantly telling someone that uh, they're in early recovery and you don't get it, you don't know it, you just have to do this, um, you know, because... Because you don't get it. It, it. it becomes overly demoralizing to remind people over and over again that you've been through eight treatments and, and you know, you're not in that stage of recovery yet. So I really try and avoid that kind of conversation and just explain to people that there's more of a daily life skill issue at hand. We'll do all the other stuff, but really the most important thing, and this gets back to the, the high dignity, and it's going to sound crazy, but it's true. I always tell the guys it, the, your recovery begins as soon as you get out of bed, do you hit your knees or don't you? Do you make your bed or don't you? Do you do you go to the bathroom and you lift the seat or don't you? Do you put the seat back down? Do you leave a little urine around the rim for the next guy to use it? Do you leave your whiskers in, in the bowl or do you wash them down so no one else has to wash behind you? Those small little elements are truly where, and it might sound nuts, truly where someone's day is going to begin in their recovery. As far as, you know, getting to the next phases, and doing all of the clinical work, a lot of that stuff's already been done by the time they've come to Foundation House. And it's these small life skills and reminders of one's own personal dignity really summing up the definition of recovery as far as I'm concerned, which is what we do when no one's looking. Right. Do you see a difference between being sober and then being in recovery? I do, yes. I, uh, and that gets back to that com- comment that I just said. Um, we get sober, we stay in recovery. Um, I think there is a difference there. Generally, we get sober, well, not generally. Oftentimes, we wind up getting sober for the wrong reasons. We wind up staying in recovery for all the right reasons. Um, I got sober, as I say, 14 times in 14 different treatments, always for the wrong reason, Uh, whether it was a a court or my girlfriend or my parents or school. I always went in reluctantly because, quite honestly, I never wanted to give up those drugs and alcohol because even as much as I had all those consequences in my life, Mary, they still work. Right. Still, they still work. Um, then is, once I had, thankfully, which was a, you know, as defined in the big book, a spiritual experience that led to a spiritual awakening, that obsession and that desire truly was lifted, and all of that information in those primary treatments where I, quote, unquote, got sober, allowed me to get back into the program and stay in recovery. So they do go hand in hand, and, and they're, they're necessary, but they are distinctly different. And do you think people can be sober for years and not be in recovery? Um, I do because most often those people who are sober uh, oftentimes violate that golden rule, which is recovery is what we do when no one's looking. I mean, are, are you actually, uh, you know, taking Vicodin frequently for, um, you know, I don't know, for an old elbow injury from high school football. I mean, is that what you're doing at the age of, you know, 36 or 52? Um, you know, are you cheating on your spouse? Are you stealing office supplies from your, your work, your place of work? Uh, there's a lot of things that um, just sober people are inclined to perhaps do and rationalize as being, well, at least I'm not drinking or using my primary drug, let's say heroin or what have you. But a lot of people in recovery, you know, where I should say the people that I know in recovery, uh, certainly the ones who've got more time than me who I keep trying to chase down a day at a time, uh, I find at least as far as I can tell, you know, who knows what goes on behind closed doors, but as far as I can tell, they they really don't actively engage in those types of behaviors. 
So there's a Especially there's when a no value, one's looking, I should say. There's a value system. In addition to having dignity, there's also a value system. There's a code of behavior, if you will, that um, is that includes self-respect and respect of others. And there, there has to be. I mean, karma's got to come into play here at some point. I mean, let, let, let's all agree that for those of us who were in active addiction requiring uh, long-term recovery, we, we violated a number of moral laws or certainly uh, just standard social laws. Uh, you know, we violated a lot of things beyond just that even. Um, so when we come in, I, I speak to the guys frequently, you know, we got to pay the price for our actions because Lord knows uh, people are now paying the price for our recovery. You know, we can't just think that we, we okay, well, now I'm sober and every, everything is just going to be forgotten, which is certainly why the, you know, eighth and ninth step is there as far as amends, but that just doesn't do it. I mean, we literally have to be living examples of why we're not going to do that and why that's going to be a positive impact now, not only on ourselves, obviously, but those around us. So, you know, we, we owe that to the people who we wound up crossing and, uh, and, and I hate to use the word violating, but in many ways, I mean, that, that's what goes with addiction. You know, one, one of the things that you had talked about earlier that I kind of want to go back to is the whole concept of, um, you know, people, uh, being told over and over again that, you know, you're in early recovery, take the cotton out of your ears, put it in your mouth, um, kind of that whole you don't know anything yet. Right. Uh, and, I, and I think that sometimes, um, you know, people, whether it's in self-help or people who are in the addiction professionals, we tend to have, we tend to be just as discriminatory and victimizing as the outside world is sometimes. Me, meaning what, to, to, to our clients we actually yes. say that? yeah. Yes, I think we. I think we do. I think sometimes you know we we don't treat them with dignity. Okay, um, you, you, do we have two minutes here, Mary, in this segment? Uh, we have a few. Okay, yeah. here you go. This is you know uh, one of your coworkers was so uh, lucky enough to hear this story. Um, this might this might really you know uh, shy people away from foundation, and then it might excite some people. Uh, on that note, you know, t- I try to explain to my guys, you know, the old you don't know what you don't know, so you got to trust. And, and a lot of the guys look at me like, what are you talking about, you know? In a sense, they're thinking I know everything because I know what I know now, and that must be everything. And I'm trying to say, no, you don't know. You, you, have to have, you have to believe in what you can't see. Trust me, you're, in, you're, you're really in early recovery. I hate to say it, but let's talk about that. And, and you have every uh, chance of this long recovery, but you can't see it, so you're not necessarily doing the actions because you haven't unlearned the old behaviors yet to learn these new ones to keep you in long-term recovery, and they're like, what do you mean we, we, can't, we don't believe we can't see? What is this, some fantasy thing? I go, no, I, uh, and this gets back to a challenge that happened in a process group the day before. You we were talking about what lengths people are willing to go for our recoveries, and we're not even aware of that. And guys were asking me, well, what lengths would I go to? You know, they were challenging me. And then a lot of stuff came up, and one guy says, well, would you wear pink tights? I said, of course I would. So that kind of became the challenge where if I wore pink tights, um, that gentleman would have to go to two meetings a day, get, you know, phone numbers and signatures for a week. So the next process group came up the next day. I was in my pants, showed up, talked for 15 minutes about let's follow up with the you can't, you know, you don't know, you, or I'm sorry, you have to believe in what you can't see. And all they wanted to know, talk about was the bet, the bet, the bet. I said, we're not talking about that. you got to listen. There's a new day kind of playing them along here. So after 15 minutes of this, I go, now do you guys believe me when I say you got to believe in what you don't see? They're like, yeah, but you, 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 you chickened out. You're not wearing the tights. I go, who in here thinks I'm wearing the tights? So a couple of guys kind of knowing my routine by now, they raise their hand. I said, this is for the rest of you. This is for the, the 11 who, uh, who don't believe that. I, I took off my, this is like Mike Singletary from the 49ers, for those who are familiar. I took off my pants and proceeded to run the meeting for the next 45 minutes in pink tights. I said to the guys, you have to believe in something you can't see. Just because I was wearing pants, that doesn't mean I wasn't wearing the pink tights. You have to believe in something that you can't see. No matter how crazy it might sound right now, you have to believe in that. You might not know what you don't know now, but you have to believe in that. So that was kind of one way, and I know it's a silly way, but and I just, you know, let the whole world hear that that's somewhat of our approach, but we keep those pink tights in the office now. When people can't believe in our individual sessions, the things we're talking about, I pull out the pink tights, I say, here you go, pink tights. You know, and it sounds goofy, but it's a way of trying to reach out without trying to, 
put that stigma like you were talking, you know, on our own clients. Yeah, we had a situation here um, a couple weeks ago where one of our uh, young men had gotten a speeding ticket up in northern New Hampshire where there's also, it's in Laconia where all the bikers go in the summer, and we all assumed um, that his fine, he could be he could make payments on his fine. Well, in this court, you had to pay that day or you went to jail. Right. So, um, and I'll finish our story when we come back um, from our next break. So hang in there, everybody, and you'll hear about our Laconia story, and we'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're... um Talking with Patrick Babcock, who's the CEO and founder of Foundation House in Portland, Maine. And I just want to get back to my Laconia story. So um, one of our staff was with our uh, our young man, and she posted bail for him. And she came back, and, and all of her team members are saying, what, are you crazy? What did you do that? You should have let him sit in jail. And one of our um, team members is um, has a number of years of recovery, a day at a time, and he's a licensed social worker. And he said, let me tell you a story. And he said, when I was like two months into my recovery, I was going to AA and thought, these guys are a bunch of phonies, and I was going because I didn't know what else to do. And one of his old experiences caught up with him, and he ended up going into jail, and he needed $850 to get out of jail, and he didn't have the money, so he asked one of the AA guys to take care of his dogs. So 24 hours later, he gets bailed out of jail because um, his friends in AA pooled their money together to to, to bail him out. And he said, from that day on, I knew that these people were real and the program worked. Right. You know, he I, never, I he never would have been able to have predicted that for the life of him right. at that point. Right. And I think we have a caller. Um, can we uh, hear the caller, please? Hi. Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, how are you? Good. Hey, Melissa, how you doing? Good, thank you. Long-time listener, first-time caller, Mary. Love the show. Thank you. You're welcome. You have I have a question? question for Patrick. First and foremost, were the tights reinforced toe tights? They uh, were not. They, uh, you know, and I had to really check, you know, my, uh, speaking of which, my toenails, you know, as a, as a man, you really don't uh, understand how delicate a tight is until uh, you put one on and then you realize, you know, pedicures are more necessary in recovery than you thought. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make that clear. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, seriously, though, um, Patrick, I'm curious about your thoughts on what you and Mary have been talking about in terms of 12-step involvement versus, you know, a lot of people talk about alternative um, recovery, whether it be smart recovery or sort of alternative self-support, you know, self-help groups and um, peer groups and those kinds of things and how that plays into um, what you two were talking about. Help me out with smart recovery. It used to be called rational recovery? Yeah, yeah. Describe that a little bit more. That, that's actually falling on not-so-familiar ears in that case. Um, well, it was started a number of years ago in the 80s by some people who really couldn't buy into the spirituality and the powerlessness right. of um, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's sounding familiar, right, right. So this was, uh, rational recovery was started by those folks, and... Was, was, was there, there was some harm reduction element to that, yes or no? 
Uh, that's moderation management, but certainly in smart recovery, it was. Um, right, I'm not sure. Did, right. Abstinence wasn't really. I mean, I'm sorry. In rational recovery, abstinence wasn't um, always necessary, and it, it really is more of a an intellectual um, kind of thing as opposed to a spiritual thing. And now, smart recovery um, is offered in a lot of prisons, in addition to AA, because it's it's different and it's and there's not the spiritual concepts. Oh, boy. Um, you know, and, and it, it, that kind of rang a bell. I just didn't want to speak out of turn, you know, to at least have someone who could uh, more eloquently put the, the, the description of that um, out there as opposed to myself. This, this is the way, this is how I think it really comes, what it boils down to. You can try, I, I, I go to Buddhist meditation retreats. I've sat down, you know, I've sat for 17 hours at a time, you know, and people are going to, I know this might not be, you know, rational recovery or alternative or something like that. I don't care what you do. Argentinian tango, swimming, uh, acupuncture, yoga, uh, smart recovery. All, you can intellectually, you can go to more self-help groups if that keeps you, you know, busy for, uh, you know, 16 hours a day and then you, you sleep for the other eight. Great. Whatever whatever keeps someone busy and, and active in a, um, in, a, in, in a recovery mode, if you will, that only adds to, or it can only help, I would presume, um, you know, a long-term recovery. However, the two things, or three things come to mind here. One, I don't buy anything other than abstinence. Dr- drugs and alcohol, there's no such thing as uh, moderation maintenance or, or harm reduction or, or anything like, like that. Uh, it, it's, it's physically and mentally impossible. And, and I would beg anybody to uh, try and... Uh, you know, myself and that person with their model take, you know, two uh, individuals. I'll get, I'll take one in abstinence and the other one we take in, in harm reduction um, and we'll see how their lives uh, unfold. Beyond that, um, this, this is a, this is a uh, condition that is, and I'm, I'm bastardizing the, the, the quote here, I can't believe I'm doing that, but, uh, you know, our, 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 our recovery is based upon uh, our spiritual condition. This is, this is something that is truly beyond us. If there was a cure for addiction, we would all know about it. We'd have it. Much like uh, maybe, you know, insulin is, I don't want to say the cure for diabetes, but it's certainly our maintenance. The only maintenance that's truly been shown over and over and over again is a program, is a process, if you will. You know, I know people might be put off by the word program, but the process of the 12 steps, whether it's a spiritual process that people want to, you know, use it as, or an intellectual one, or an emotional one, the beauty of what Dr. Bob and Bill W. has created is that it's a life process. This fits to everything. It's not like, uh, you know, a harm reduction program or any other uh, program or process that's out there. fits to everything, really. It, it, this 12-step model uh, applies to everything. It, it, it's, it's something that is indisputable that once someone puts this into practice, it, you know, if, if, if we're, what's the expression, if, you know, if we're willing to any length, go to any lengths to go to it, then, and then we're willing to take these certain steps, you know, then going back a couple of pages, these promises will come true. They come true over and over again, uh, you know, w- without having to compromise. Maybe, oh well, I'm only going to have uh, a couple of drinks here. I mean, that, that's a frustrating reality for someone who's truly addicted that I can't even fathom uh, potentially living in. It, it's just, I, I'm sorry, I. All due respect to anyone who might say otherwise, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a, I'm a drug addict. I'm thankfully in recovery. There's not a chance that I could do one of anything that chemically sets me off. It's, it's, it's physically and mentally impossible for me to do that. And the many, many people that I've talked to, uh, both in the field but specifically in the rooms of, of AA and NA, um, all to a person will tell you that it's, it's impossible. Those who, those who say otherwise... Um, if you ask me, are those who are, tend to uh, 100% of the time be struggling in the rooms? So to kind of um, wrap up what we were, what our show is about, what is the secret of turning early recovery into long-term recovery? Uh, I definitely am going to fall back, of course, on a 12-step based um, rehabilitating model. There's zero question about that. You know, we have to be, like we talked about in the beginning, 
I, I truly believe it's not geographics, but you have to do you have to remove yourself from the element. Obviously, not too many people uh, get sober uh, in a crack house or at a bar. So you have to, you know, or in an abusive relationship, or perhaps on Wall Street where your boss is someone you were either dealing to or or deal or, or you know was dealing to you or enabling you to stay on the job because you were making enough money. We have to remove ourselves from the environment. We have to go into a rehabilitation environment that's suitable for you. And we have so many phenomenal facilities across this country. Um, you know, just about any uh, any level of the disease, if you will, and the many tentacles that it has can be treated in the various facilities. Enter into that environment, and then um, really kind of. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I don't know how I can put the best definition on it other than the definitions I used. Uh, absorb yourself in that environment and with the people who treat you in a dignified manner without any drama. You know, the conflict for an addict uh, generally leads to bad things. And, and, and demoralization and feeling as though one doesn't fit in leads to that same thing. And it's generally removing oneself from a process and then finding that comfortably numb, if you will, you know, apologies to Pink Floyd, comfortably numb space where we can, you know, feel at one with ourselves under the influence, as opposed to, you know, feeling at one with our community or our family or what have you. And a lot of that comes down to uh, treating our own recovery with dignity, treating others with dignity, and lessening the drama in life and living in the solution as opposed to the problem. Oh, I'm sorry, still on? I am. Do you have any other questions or comments for Patrick? No, no. That was great. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. Bye-bye. So, Mary. So, Patrick, thank you so much. This has been a very fast hour and a very enlightening hour. And do you have one last thing you would like to say to folks out there? Um, give it time. You know, that gets back to what we're, we're talking about. Give it time. This is not something that... Uh, as Mary pointed out, can, can happen within 28 days. It's something that is, uh, you, you know, it, it's perpetually uh, evolving. It's, it's an hour at a time. Uh, sometimes it's a minute at a time. It's, you know, one of the best scenes in any movie I've ever seen was in Clean and Sober when Morgan Freeman and uh, Michael Keaton were in the bathroom, and then he explained that. He goes, you know, sometimes it's a month, you know, a day at a time, sometimes an hour, sometimes a minute. Thank you so much, Patrick, and I hope everyone has a wonderful week, and we'll... See you next year. Be here at the same time. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks, Patrick. Bye-bye. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.